Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Okay. It is 7.31 in Los Angeles. Welcome to the regular Monday night class against the stream. Um, We're in the midst of a series of teachings on Monday night, which is um, based on uh, the book, Heart of the Revolution. And I've been uh, each week going through chapter by chapter, topic by topic, the teachings in this book. And tonight we are at the heart of the heart of the revolution, which is the um, heart practices of uh, metta, loving kindness. And so we're going to do loving kindness practice tonight. And I am going to uh, do some commentary on the metta sutta, metta, which we translate as loving kindness, also translated as unconditional friendliness, also uh, universal love. Last week I talked about the difference between personal love and romantic love. And tonight, you know, the topic is universal love, developing a, a mind and a heart that wishes all beings ease, that has no, uh, you know, free from resentments, free from ill will and hatred, uh, radiating kindness over the entire world. Um, and so we'll do the meditation instructions will be on loving kindness practice. And we'll talk about it a little bit. I'll say a couple of things before we begin. One is that uh, my sense is the mindfulness practices in the original teachings of the Buddha, he did not teach loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, or equanimity, what we call these heart practices. They weren't in the original formulation, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. I believe he didn't include them there because he believed that mindfulness itself would take us to this experience of universal love. Mindfulness itself would develop compassion, would develop appreciation and equanimity. He later saw, I think this is how it went in in my fantasy world of why the Buddha didn't teach it in the beginning, but started teaching it later, was that he later saw, although mindfulness does work and it is a direct path to realizing kindness and compassion, um, it's a bit of a slower process than if you actually intentionally cultivate loving kindness, uncover compassion, uncover uh, appreciation and equanimity. So my own practice over these last many decades, three decades, um, has been doing a lot of mindfulness practice and a lot of heart practices. This whole book is uh, really about developing these wise emotional uh, responses to, to life. There's a place in the suttas. I'm not totally convinced that this is the Buddha's teaching, a lot of, you know, I don't know if you guys know when I use this term sutta, sutta means um, 
it actually means suture. You know that term suture, which means stitches? You ever get stitches? <laughs> Sutta means stitches. And what it means is all of the earliest teachings of the Buddha were written down and stitched together, were sutured together. They were sewn together uh, into books on palm leaves. And this happened you know, a couple hundred years after he was gone. Um, but the early, you know, in the suttas, there's all of this stuff that says the Buddha said this and the Buddha said that and the Buddha said this. My own feeling is that some percentage of what is in the suttas is religious bullshit and had nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. There's a lot of Buddhists that would be quite upset with me for saying that, but that's my opinion. That's my view. Having studied the suttas, having studied Buddhism for a long time, some of the stuff just doesn't fit. And it just feels like power, structure, religious dogma that's not quite in line with the spirit of how I receive the Buddha's Dharma. This might be one of the lists <laughs> <laughs> that somebody later came up with and threw in there. Uh, I'm not sure. Not meta itself, but this list I'm about to read to you before we meditate, which is the, uh, the uh, what is it? 11 benefits of loving kindness. Again, it's quite possible that the Buddha said this. It's also quite possible that someone else added this into the suttas later. Reportedly, the Buddha said that there are 11 particular advantages to practicing loving kindness meditation. Number one, like I'm giving you this, this is the carrot. Before we meditate, <laughs> if you do this meditation regularly, you will get these 11 benefits. I feel like a infomercial, like uh, Ginsu knives. You will also receive, first of all, you will get the ability to sleep easily. Now, for anybody that, any, anybody have insomnia? Anybody have night terrors, uh, anxiety around sleep? That this practice, the kindness internally and externally will help calm the mind so that one can sleep easily. Number two, you will wake easily. Right before class, uh, Rachel and I were talking about morning persons you know, getting up early to meditate. Uh, how many cups of coffee do you need before you are ready to meditate and destroy and, you know, go to a meeting or go to work? Or one of the benefits of loving kindness is that when we practice it thoroughly, you will wake up easily. Not hitting snooze over and over and over. When you do sleep easily, number three, you will have pleasant dreams. Just before class, before I was talking to Rachel, I was talking to another friend who teaches uh, more like Hindu meditation techniques. And um, he was talking, telling me about this uh, teaching anxiety dream that he had last night. And he's like, you ever get that dream about like, you're, you know, teaching and like nobody shows up or you're teaching and like something goes awfully wrong when you're teaching. And I was like, no, I've never, I've never, <laughs> sorry, I'm not with you. I don't. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. I don't, I don't have bad dreams about teaching. Um, so, you know, this benefit of loving kindness that uh, the more kindness you develop in your heart, in your mind, the more that will carry into the unconscious, the subconscious, the dream state. 
Number four, people will love you, right? That's a, that's a big, like, it almost sounds like everyone, which of course is not true. But, you know, when you're the kinder you are, the more compassionate, the more friendly you become, and the easier you are to love, the easier you are for people to be like, yeah, I fucking love that person. They're like, you know, seem genuinely at ease in their own skin and they seem happy and they're a pleasure to be around. I love being around that person. Number five, animals and unseen beings will love you. Um, so animals, you know, like who, you know, I don't know if you're a dog person or a cat person or, a, you know, like a fish person <laughs> person you are, but um, animals will love you. And unseen beings is a reference to what in Buddhism we call devas. Devas are angels. Devas, devas are these like celestial beings. And some, you know, angels gives a connotation of, I don't know, I generally think that angels are like all, always good, <laughs> you know, the, um, but devas, like there are good devas and there are bad devas. Not all devas are angels, they're celestial beings. And some of them are nefarious and tricksters. And, you know, some of the devas actually like, you know, don't like humans that much. Some of them love humans. But this is saying, the more kind you become, not only will human beings love you, not only will animals love you, but that shit you can't even see will also dig you. Uh, I got to just pause and say, I'm not fully sold on the devas. You know, it is part, you know, it might be one of those things that got thrown in there. Um, maybe it's true. I feel agnostic about devas. I don't know. The other context of the devas will love you is that um, it is said that uh, the context of the Buddha teaching loving kindness, as I said in the beginning, he didn't teach it in the beginning. He taught it some years later in the context of when he started this, this sutta, this teaching came, was that a bunch of monks came to him who'd been practicing by themselves in the forest. And they said, um, we're terrified. We feel like we're being attacked by the devas in the forest, these tree spirits, these something is out to get us. We're out there minding our own business, doing our sitting meditation, our walking meditation. We're going to town and begging for food. We're coming back to the forest. We're doing our practice, but something's fucking with us. Something is pissed at us for meditating in the forest. Now, again, my skeptical Western atheist's mind uh, feels like, you know, okay, a bunch of people came to the teacher and said, we're afraid of the dark. <laughs> it's really scary out there in the forest. There's all kinds of sounds and there's, you know, wind in the trees and, you know, there's animals and stuff. And it was the context in which the Buddha said, well, if you practice metta, then all beings will love you, animals, devas, and those, those, you know, forests, you know, the enchanted forest will also accept you as a kind and loving and a non-threat. You know, if you really practice this, then they'll stop fucking with you. Or you'll become so at ease in your own being that you will no longer be afraid of the dark. 
Um, so that was number five. Number six, unseen beings will protect you. So not only will they love you and stop fucking with you, now they have your back. The devas are like, we got you. Don't worry about it. You can meditate right here. We won't let any of the tigers eat you. Number seven, external dangers. Now this is the one I'm very skeptical of myself. External dangers such as fire, poison, and weapons will not harm you. What do you think? You think you can become so loving and kind that you're a fucking superhero? <laughs> just, just so, you know, I actually, one of the reasons I don't believe that this in particular is a teaching of the Buddha is because the Buddha died of food poisoning. Yes, he was an old man, but as the story goes, he got some poison food and that that was what actually killed him. And so this promise of loving kindness and you know being protected from poisons doesn't fit. Here's the only way that I can get my mind around this. Not that we will not be harmed by fire, poisons and weapons, right? It's like fucking, you'll be Wonder Woman. You'll just have those bracelets and you'll just be like, you can't get me with your weapons. I don't buy it. But what I do buy is that we could develop such equanimity, such compassion, such wisdom that when we were attacked by weapons, we wouldn't suffer about it. That when we were on fire, we wouldn't suffer about it that when we were experiencing poison, we weren't meeting the poison with hatred, meeting the poison with fear, that that level of equanimity, that that level of loving kindness and, and compassion could be developed so high. In another place in the, in the teachings, the Buddha says, you could practice loving kindness to the level where even if you were attacked and held down and they were chopping off your arms and your legs, you would not think an unkind thought towards your enemy, towards the person who was actually dismembering you. That I can see as a really fucking high bar, but maybe. <laughs> Not that they're not going to be able to attack you and cut your arms off. It's going to protect you. But that if you were in this unavoidable scenario of dismemberment, you could have so much compassion that you wouldn't meet them with hatred, that you would actually, and, and the kind of uh, example here is that we would see the karma that our enemies are creating for themselves, those people that are, and you would have compassion, these poor confused fools doing violence and the karma that they were going to reap from this violence. I don't want to get too sidetracked because I'm already super sidetracked, but I will say that I personally believe totally in self-defense. So before you let somebody hold you down and chop your arms off, kick them in the nuts if you can. <laughs> Do what you can to protect yourself if they have nuts, kick them, if they're about to chop your arms off, you know? And that that, in my mind, would not be an act of violence, but an act of stopping violence. 
Number eight, but that's not all. You will also receive a face that will be radiant. Your own face will be uh, glowing and shimmering and radiant. You will, people will just be like, wow, she's glowing. They are glowing. He is glowing with metta, loving kindness. Number nine, your mind will be serene. And aren't most of us really, isn't that really the goal for most of us? Like, why are you meditating in the first place? Maybe not so much about, I want to sleep better. I want to wake up more easily. I want, to, I want dogs to love me. <laughs> but really, I'm doing it because I want my mind to be serene. I want to have that experience of ease and well-being within my own heart and mind. And one of the outcomes in this shit about protecting us against uh, weapons, you know, seems pretty far-fetched, but not that far-fetched to know that the more we meditate, the more love and kindness and forgiveness we develop, the more our mind will be settled, will be serene, will be at ease. And or we will be at ease with whatever arises in the mind. Number 10, when you die, you will die unconfused. unconfused. You hear those stories about elderly people dying, 90 years old, saying, why me? <laughs> like, like that, that confused that like you're 90. That's why you like your body is just not going to support the life force anymore. And the more we understand the Dharma, the more when death comes, especially if it's uh, an elderly experience, there's an acceptance and there's not this confusion and there's not this rejection and this feeling of a victim of mortality. And it's just like, well, of course I'm, uh, I'm mortal. And so I was born. And so death is the natural outcome. I'm not confused about that. I'm at ease with it. And last, but not least, number 11, if you are reborn, when you are reborn, when you die unconfused, your next lifetime, you will be reborn into a happy realm, into a suitable, into a happy realm of existence. I didn't mean to go on that long about that. I was just going to read the list, but I couldn't help but commenting because they're kind of funny. So let's meditate. Find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed, and we'll do loving-kindness meditation. Allowing your eyes to be gently closed, softening any tension that you can release and soften. Feel the sensations that are present here. 
breath coming and going. Contact with the chair, cushion, couch, bed, wherever you're sitting. And set the aspiration, the intention to uncover a loving heart or to develop loving kindness. Incline your heart and mind towards loving kindness, unconditional friendliness towards yourself and others. And if you can get a good sense of loving kindness in your own heart, fill your own being with friendliness, with your own well wishes, goodwill. And then begin allowing this feeling of loving kindness to radiate in all directions to include all other living beings. And if you're not quite there yet, like most of us, you can use the traditional phrases to develop this sense of loving kindness to ourselves and others. Starting with yourself saying slowly over and over in your heart and mind, may I be happy. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. Finding your own pace of placing these thoughts in your mind, your heart. Creating the neuropathways of friendliness, of kindness towards yourself. May I be happy. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering.
when your attention wanders away from these phrases into some memory or plan, some resistance, judgment. Come back. You don't have to mean it yet. You don't have to feel anything. But this practice is one of repetition, of concentrating the mind on these phrases by repeating them over and over slowly in your own mind and heart. And you can adjust them to suit yourself. You can add other phrases that are in line with loving kindness. May I learn to be happy with myself just as I am. May I learn to be at ease just as I am with this mind, body. May I learn to be at ease in this world with all of the sorrow and confusion and all of the joy and wisdom. May I free myself from suffering, the suffering of clinging to impermanent things, the suffering of aversion, resentment, resisting painful experience, Free from the suffering of confusion, of delusion, of self-centered fear.
and begin to expand your practice, the training of the heart and mind to be kind, generous, loving, bringing to mind some benefactors, some teachers, friends, people who've inspired you, supported you. And extending loving kindness in their direction with the same phrases. But now we say, may you be happy. Dear teacher, dear friend. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering, the causes of suffering. Just as I wish to be happy, I wish for your happiness. Just as I wish to be at ease, I wish for your ease. Just as I am on this path to end the causes of suffering, I wish for your end of suffering.
and honoring your benefactors, your teachers, your wise relatives, friends, expanding again, and this time in more of a general way to mixed category, friends and family. There's some love and also perhaps some wounds some resentment. Sending loving kindness to your parents and grandparents, your ancestors. Siblings, extended family, children. May you be happy, all of my relatives. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. When your attention wanders away from the phrases, finding that balance of a disciplined and a steadfast commitment to your practice, but also relaxed and non-judgmental in the way that you come back to the next phrase. Start over as many times as you need to. And keep going even if you don't like it. And expanding again this time to some difficult people in your life. People that you have some judgment, some fear, some resentment towards ill will. One of the teachings here is to free ourselves from ill will, resentment, spite. And we have done the forgiveness meditation and it's more pointed at forgiveness, but in loving kindness also by wishing well for your enemies. helps relieve resentment, having compassion for their wounds, their confusion, their ignorance. Just as I wish to be happy, I wish for the happiness, the difficult people in my life, the difficult people in this world, may you be happy. May you do what needs to be done to find ease in your own heart and mind. May you be free 
from suffering through your own efforts. May you learn compassion, non-attachment, wisdom. Wishing for our enemies, all that we wish for ourselves, freedom. Again, you don't have to mean it yet, but it's so good for the heart to fake it till you make it, to say it. And you can put in a phrase that makes it more genuine. May I learn to care about my enemies? May I develop the Willingness to wish happiness for the difficult people in the world. You can set the aspiration if you're really not there and it's really difficult to say in your heart. And begin to expand. Let the difficult people recede into the background, into their little corners, caves. And just beginning to expand in all directions, radiating kindness over the entire world as much as you can, the intention of goodwill, the wish for ease and happiness and freedom for all of the neutral people, all of the unknown people, human beings across the globe. Just like you living a human existence with the craving for pleasure, the aversion to pain, the self-centered tendency, whatever ethnicity, nationality, religion, 
whatever their politics are, whether you would consider them wise or unwise. Just like you, all living beings wish for happiness. Extending loving kindness above, below, to the young and old, rich and poor. To the wealthy living in luxury and relative material comfort, to the poor, the destitute, those dying of starvation. including all who are experiencing oppression, as well as all of the oppressors, the confused beings who are harming each other. May all living beings be happy and at ease and free from suffering. We wish this, we train our heart not because it's going to alleviate anyone else's suffering, but because it will uncover your own wise heart, your own unconditionally universal love for all sentient beings. And don't stop at the human realm, but include the animal realm, all of the animals, both those living in the luxury of domestic life and a loving family, and those in captivity, in the factories, living in fear, as well as those living in the wild, also often living in fear, part of a food chain. The seas, the skies, all sentient beings, everything with a nervous system fears harm, fears pain, wishes for ease. Not just humans, but all living beings.
and returning to this living being right here that you have most influence over, your own body, heart, mind. And remembering that you are included as part of the all. And that the Buddha once said when asked about loving kindness, that we could search all realms of existence and never find anyone more worthy of our love, of our kindness than ourselves. I remind you of your worthiness and I invite you to remember your own worth and ability to get free, to wake up, to heal. When you're ready, you can allow your eyes to be open. Bringing attention back. Seeing through the eyes of loving kindness, these squares in front of you, my big face. <laughs> <laughs> each other so I'll share the metta sutta this teaching and um, the English translation of the Pali uh, recorded words, the spoken language of the Buddha, um, probably from Pali translated into Sri Lankan in the early suttas or written in Pali was a spoken dialect, not a, um, not a, it has no alphabet. And so they translated into Sri Lankan and then we translate it back into English. The Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. Remember the context. These guys come and say, hey, we're afraid of the dark and we're suffering. What should we do? The Buddha says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. 
Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or laying down. Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. Just take a moment to reflect. Let it reverberate. What aspects resonate, ring true? What aspects bring up questions or skepticism? So this whole chapter in the book, I go through sort of line by line and do a commentary on uh, here's, anyways, 10 years ago when I wrote this shit, <laughs> here's what I thought uh, 10 years ago, right? This is what's so interesting about this kind of stuff is that um, I probably would do a different commentary today than I did a decade ago. But, you know, so the book goes through my perspective at 20 years of study and practice, and now I'm, you know, 30 something years of study and practice. And this gradual shifting, right, impermanence, everything's impermanent, even, you know, just think about 10 years ago, did you have some views that have changed, some ideas, some perspectives that have changed? I feel like mine are, are, are changing some. So I'll, I don't feel like we have time in you know, 20, 30 minutes to go through it line by line, but I'm gonna pick out a couple of pieces to, uh, that are, I feel like are quite important to me. I really like this line that um, I've used a lot and I reflect on it a lot uh, towards the beginning where it says, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove or disapprove of. Um, 
And I don't think, you know, we don't want to get too much into, you know, judging or comparing or, you know, who would approve or who would disapprove. But I think that for me, especially when I came to practice and in early years of practice, I just had enough humility to know I was full of shit and my own, you know, like in recovery, this, uh, my own best thinking, (laughs) my own views and opinions and, you know, got me strung out and locked up and in such desperation that I started meditating. And so as I started meditating and studying and practicing, I knew it became really obvious to me early on, I can't trust my own mind. It's constantly giving me bad advice. And, you know, it was the one that was telling me to do all of this stuff that was causing me suffering. There is this question of, as we practice, at what point are we uh, independent and self-sufficient? And can we actually trust our own heart and mind? Until you get there, I think it's been such a useful skill, uh, you know, and, and inquiry to think about, like, if you have a teacher, Uh, or people that inspire you, or even thinking about the Buddha, the archetypal teacher, would this wise being approve of how I'm behaving? And uh, of course, you want to make sure that you don't choose somebody who's too rigid. (laughs) You want to choose somebody that is actually in line with uh, what you believe is wise. But I've used this a lot. I mean, I remember years ago, there used to be that, uh, there was like a trend of uh, what would Jesus do? You remember that? It was like WWJD, what would Jesus do? But it's for here, it's like, what would the Buddha do? What would the Dalai Lama, would they disapprove of this? What about, uh, and so for me, I've had, I had two core uh, teachers. I've had a bunch of teachers, but Jack Cornfield and uh, Ajahn Amro. And so I'd often think, and, and which was intentional on, on many levels to have a monastic teacher and to have a householder teacher, because I love the monastics. I love studying with the monks. There's so much wisdom there, but also they don't know much about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And that's very important to me because <laughs> they've renounced all of that. And so I also wanted a householder teacher who was engaging in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> um, drugs you know, is a whole nother thing, but you know what I mean, you know, that worldly and kind of renunciate teacher. And so I've seen in my own tendency uh, how slippery we can, I can be around like, okay, um, if this is about uh, Dharma practice, I might think around, you know, if it's around right speech, or I might think of Ajahn Amaro, this monk, and think, you know, would my monastic Dharma teacher approve? Am I behaving? Am I being honest enough? Am I being generous enough? Am I, you know, would they disapprove of this behavior? And then if it had something to do with, you know, sex or money or something, maybe I would think of uh, Jack Cornfield, because he was engaging in that. And, you know, would he uh, approve or disapprove of my relationship here with money or sex or, but I find it very useful, you know, to, to have that and not that many, you know, people in this culture get to have a direct relationship with a teacher. So sometimes you have to just the archetypal 
doing nothing, abstaining from harmful behaviors that the wise would be like, why are you doing that? Like you're just hurting yourself. You're hurting others. The core meditation instruction is obvious. May all beings be at ease. This becomes the generative uh, phrase to extend loving kindness and so thorough may all beings and he goes through the whole list there's three mentions of freeing ourselves from resentment in the loving kindness sutta we did forgiveness already uh, we'll come back to forgiveness over and over i think when i was doing forgiveness a few weeks ago i said in some ways maybe this is a prerequisite in order to really getting into the place of loving kindness three places here the buddha says let none deceive another practice honesty or despise any being in any state to despise resent hate how much different would your life be if you were totally free from despising any being in any state and what needs to take place in order to get there now one of the tools here is the more we take the people that we do despise right there's that humility of like yeah that's a nice idea but i'm not there i actually have a long list of people that i despise but when you start taking that long list of people that you despise and sending them loving kindness may you be happy i hate you <laughs> but may you be happy I, you know, uh, I want you to get hit by a bus, but may you be at ease. I want, you know, may you be free from suffering. May you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be free from suffering. And, you know, we don't have to, I think it's a terrible trap for us Buddhist meditative spiritual types to think that we have to be fake spiritual and pretend like we don't have enemies like we don't have resentments like we haven't been wounded and that our uh, visceral reaction to those wounds real or imagined are resentment that we despise those who hurt us or those who we believe are hurting the world the planet animals uh, you know whatever it is the... i'm always inspired by i always think of this uh, the Dalai Lama, who, you know, uh, the genocide in Tibet and his exile and just millions of Tibetans being imprisoned and tortured and murdered. And him very publicly for so long, for decades now, saying, you know, the communist Chinese uh, are my enemy and I have compassion for them. They have destroyed our culture they have you know raped and imprisoned and you know the harm is so immense these this is the enemy and i take the enemy as the object of my loving kindness and my compassion and sometimes i've seen him say my friends the enemy and that when you send loving kindness to your enemy for years and decades <laughs> that they become there becomes a, a friendly and a compassionate relationship, no matter how badly they've wounded you or uh, how much harm that they've caused. And the outcome of that isn't that they feel it and become good people, but is that you don't suffer at them. 
And so all of this practice, loving kindness is like, let's stop suffering at others. Let's not despise anybody in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. I mean, just connected. In order to not continue, and it's so just so natural, doesn't your mind just wish harm upon your enemies sometimes? You can have enough humility to be like, yeah, I just want that motherfucker to get assassinated. <laughs> I just want, you know, so-and-so to lose everything. I just, you know, I can't wait for their scandal to come along or whatever it is, and the mind just wishes harm. Uh, it's a natural, instinctual, and part of our Dharma training is Let's free ourselves from being so identified with those thoughts or feeding them or getting hooked in and um, involved in those kind of revenge fantasies. So, or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another and then farther down, freed from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or laying down, one should just sustain this recollection. So a lot of this loving kindness practice is about forgiveness. It is about opening the heart, training the heart, uncovering this quality of our heart that's not hating, that's not indulging. Um, I was just joking with a friend right before class about... Um, I mean, I don't know what your relationship to uh, justified anger, like self-righteous indignation. But for me, I fucking love it. It feels so good to be on my high horse being just like, you know, self-righteous. It's, it's, it's intoxicating to be right at them. But it's also suffering to be right at them. That intoxication, that anger, that however justified, however self-righteous it is, is a lack of ease in one's own body and is karmically, of course, unwholesome. And so there's a renunciation, free from hatred, free from ill will, free from despising any being in any state. The other piece here that I always resonates with me, and, it, and when I first heard it, I didn't quite know what it meant. T towards the end of the sutta, he says, um, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. So just those three sentences. By not holding to fixed views, clinging to our views, our opinions, the ways that we, even our enemies, this stuff I'm talking about, forgiveness, our enemies, the people that have hurt you, uh, it's so easy to just turn that into a, a fixed identity. You are that person. That's who you are. You're the liar. <laughs> You're the thief. You're the abandoner. You're the cheater, whatever it is, and just fixing our views. In order to be loving and kind and wise, we have to realize everything is impermanent. Everyone is impermanent. 
and have to not hold to the fixed views, even if there's discernment of like, yeah, I'm, that person did not tell the truth at that time, or that person did abandon, or that person did, you know, cheat, or whatever it is, did hurt me in some way, or but that's not who we are, that's not who they are. We can't fix people in that impermanent action as their identity. And it says the pure hearted one. And the way that I like to, to think about that is um, through doing this practice, mindfulness is considered a purification practice, loving kindness, forgiveness. Uh, there's all of these uh, impurities. There's all of these things that are blocking, that are getting in the way of our freedom our resentments, our attachments, fixed views, our judgments, our fears, what we call the hindrances or we call the uh, taints, the impurities, that it's not like you're now, you're a pure hearted one. Everyone is a pure hearted one. It's just how polluted have our hearts become and how much have we, the heart's nature is pure is what I'm saying. I, you know, I believe this. This is, the, this is why I think that the Buddha, um, through his mindfulness practice, he connected with his own pure heart of loving kindness and compassion. Everyone's nature is a pure heart. But all of our hearts have been polluted by clinging and aversion and greed, hatred, and delusion. And these practices purify the heart uncover the heart, bring the toxins, bring the impurities, bring the ignorance to the surface where then we can heal, where then we can let go, then we can experience some freedom. And so we get a lot of that in our mindfulness insight practice and we get that much more. It's like a refining of the heart by doing loving kindness, by doing compassion, by doing forgiveness appreciation, equanimity. I'll comment on this and then let's open it up. Um, there's so much here and I could do five Dharma talks on it, but I wanna talk about this piece uh, where it says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, um, I'd imagine that some of you felt like my mom wouldn't have protected me with her life. <laughs> For sure that some of us were, you know, uh, raised by moms who were like, nope, I'm definitely not more concerned with my children than I am with myself. Or at least it felt that way to a lot of people. And it felt like, no, mom was not protecting me with her life. She was lost in her own confusion and her own suffering. So maybe translating uh, this to just as the ideal wise and healthy parent would protect with their life, their children. And uh, maybe some of us have to go to uh, a wise grandparent to have that sort of feeling of like, yeah, yeah, my grandma had my back, my grandpa had my back, but my parents were a fucking mess. And that's often true in our culture or at least sometimes. Now, 
do you, uh, I don't want to ask it as a question. I'll make it as a statement. I don't have much hope that I will ever get to, because what's being said here is that love everyone universally the way you would love your own children. I don't have a lot of hope that I will ever be able to have the kind of empathy, the kind of tolerance, the kind of love that I have for my own children for all living beings. I don't feel like it's realistic. I don't feel like I'm going, to, but even though I don't have a lot of hope that I'm going to get there, I'm gonna continue to try. I'm gonna continue to reflect. I'm gonna continue to try to be as patient, tolerant, empathetic, kind, generous, loving uh, to strangers to my enemies as I am to my own children. This uh, bar feels way too fucking high, but I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna keep trying. And I feel like a lot of the Dharma is that, and especially this sort of universal love and compassion for all living beings. I'm not so sure we're gonna get there, but what I've seen over my practice is that I went from pretty much like kind of hating everybody and being afraid of everybody to starting to forgive and starting to love and wider circles of that kind of connection. And, you know, and going from a sort of skeptical, uh, fear-based mentality to people to a more and more trusting and loving and caring attitude. Now, I certainly haven't been able to get there towards every stranger that walks down the street but I keep trying. And often when I'm walking down the street, because of this practice, I'll say to that person walking by in my mind, may you be happy, may you be at ease, may you be free from suffering. Uh, or to the homeless person that's asking me for money or to the uh, you know, people in traffic that I'm stuck behind. The more we train our mind to do this, not that we're gonna be able to do it perfectly, but that it really shifts our attitude and our outlook and our, our just our way of being. Uh, in the world, and it's such a great, uh, and I guess here's my statement, which is that even though I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to do it perfectly, uh, it still is working. It still is important. And there's that story, I'll end with this, that I think of this kind of meta a little bit like, where there's um, a whole bunch of um, starfish washed up on a beach. There's been a big storm and there's all of these fish and they're out there dying. And um, in the sun, hundreds of them, thousands of them are out there, they're getting dried up. And there's somebody out there throwing them back into the water, one at a time, throw or two, whatever they can do, throwing them back in, trying to save them. And then someone else comes along and says like, you're never gonna be able to save them. There's too many. What you're doing is useless. And the person while continuing their starfish tossing turns to the, to the other person and says, uh, it matters to this one, <laughs> and it matters to this one, and it matters to this one. And, you know, yeah, it's going to get dark, and I'm going to get tired, and I'm going to give up at some point. But it matters to each person that we do meet with kindness. It matters to each, uh, it matters to our own mind that we keep training it in this way. Even if we're not going to be perfect, we're going to make so much progress.
in the direction that we're heading. So some of my thoughts on loving kindness, and then of course you'll sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams, you'll be reborn in happy realms, and you'll basically be a fucking superhero that weapons and poisons can't even get to. So you got that going for you. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? I see a, some chat going on over here, but if you'd like to actually interact, um, please raise your hand and, and ask the question or make the comment out loud. Rick, go for it, jump in. Um, I think you've probably addressed this already, but we probably, many of us probably know people who perhaps such as yourself, as you've described your history, need to hit rock bottom in order to truly bounce upward. Is, which, is wishing such a person ease a premature mistake? I, um, I feel like in a, a situation like that, you could adapt it a little bit. Um, and there's this um, way that, you know, I, I like making loving kindness our own. And you've, you've been practicing with me for years. Um, you know, and that you could just add a phrase, like if you're actually thinking of someone who's suffering from addiction, needs to hit bottom, maybe rather than saying, may you be at ease, um, saying something more like, may you get the teaching you need to get here, right? Without kind of saying, may you hit rock bottom or may you be at ease and just accept your addiction or whatever it is, just saying, may, I don't know what it is. You seem to be suffering from addiction. <laughs> A uh, popular thought is that you need to hit bottom in order to start the recovery process. May you get the teaching. May you get the whatever it is that will bring you to willingness to start your healing process, your recovering process. Um, so I like that, right? There, there, it is important to say not. Um, now, the other way, if you wanted to stick with the traditional ease, then it's in the context of may you get sober and start meditating and free yourself from the clinging and aversion and addiction that's causing you so much suffering so that you can be at ease, right? So it's not ease in the midst of addiction, but it's come to this place of healing and recovery so that you can actually experience ease. You know, the um, addiction realm, sometimes you've heard me talk about it as the realm of the hungry ghost, that perpetual craving. There's no ease in the midst of action, active addiction. There, you know, it's just that there isn't, even when you're intoxicated, right? It's just so temporary, so fleeting. In order to experience this kind of equanimity, ease, meta well-being, it's something that you have to escape from the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms to become human. You have to be sober to become human enough to experience the true ease that we're talking about here. Good to see you. What else, folks? What do you like about Meta? What do you hate about Meta? I, I sometimes admit that um, I fucking hated Meta. And I talk to people all the time that hate it. People tell me, yeah, yeah, you started talking about loving kindness. I tuned out. I didn't have that, not that many people tuned out tonight. 
I was talking to somebody today. They said, we're listening to another teacher and started talking about something loving kindness. They tuned out. I had some of that experience in my early practice. I loved the mindfulness. It gave me some relief, but this stuff just made me more uncomfortable. I felt more vulnerable. I felt uh, it took me some years of faking it, of just saying it and not meaning it until it started to really become genuine. And I started to really see the benefits of doing it. So if you're in that place, I empathize and I encourage you to, uh, and I hope that what happened for me will happen for you. Now, what we know for sure is that it will never happen if you don't do it, right? If you don't put, if we don't push through, um, the transformation will never happen. We'll just be stuck in the, oh, I don't do stuff that makes me uncomfortable, which is a real place to be stuck. But if you keep doing it, eventually you will find some freedom in it. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.